Hello, everyone, and welcome again to another episode of The Reinsurance Podcast. I'm your co-host, Jared Lee. And hello, everybody. I'm Ben Rose. And it's not just us two today. We have a special guest. We do. Who's our special guest today, Jared? We have an insurance partner from BCG, Jacob Palmer. Dun, dun, dun. Hello, everyone. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's really good to be here. Welcome to the studio. Uh, You've you've had your initial tour (laughs) of our secret location from where we record these. Uh, But really happy to have you on the show, in particular because of the interest you and your team have shown to the reinsurance industry recently. Mm. Uh, Admittedly, within a much broader context of tons of work you're doing, but maybe just to give the audience a bit of a flavor of what that report is about and, and, and where reinsurance comes into it. Could you just give us a, a quick summary? Sure, happy to. So, so reinsurance is a really important sector for BCG within our insurance practice. Um, we, we actually have a dedicated team focusing on reinsurance, which I think sets apart a little bit. And it, it's made up of industry practitioners who, who really understand the space. And I think that's where we're able to, to really you know, provide a, a different perspective. Um, the, every year we produce what we call the Value Creators Report. So this isn't just within insurance. This is a report that BCG produces globally across all sectors, uh, all lines of business. Um, and really, it's there to provide a view on how investors should think about different industries. So really to break down the economics of how industries are performing, both within a five and a 10-year horizon, so really to get different different long-term, short, medium-term views, um, but also to really understand you know, where there is outperformance across different sectors across, across the market. Within insurance, we take those numbers and then we break it down by different parts of the insurance space. So we have a, a, a separate report for the reinsurers, uh, one focused on life and health, and one focused more on the, the PNC side. The reinsurance one is, is really interesting. Um, and I think in particular, the results this year really stood out, really showing how reinsurers are actually slightly moving apart from the rest of the, rest of the insurance space in terms of performance. Happy to go into some of the details. Um, but it's really, it's really interesting to see the dynamics between you know, outperformance, across both the insurance space and the reinsurance space and where some of those differences are. And that's really what the report, the report tries to unpick and provide a bit of a, a more granular level of insight there. I'm really excited to tuck into that with you, but I guess before we do, just so the audience know who we're talking to, how, how did you find yourself in this world of, of reinsurance consulting? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So I've, I've always been within insurance in some form or another. So I started my career actually actually on, as a pensions actuary. Uh-huh. So coming out of university with a maths degree, it was, well, where, where should I go? What's, <laughs> what, what are the options available? And I didn't want to be a teacher or an accountant. So. <laughs> so it's funny you say that. So my brother actually became a pensions actuary and is now a teacher. It was the other route he so, could wow, have taken. Yeah. Um, so, so no, so I started in the pension space with a company called Hyman's Robertson. That was really mm. where I got my grounding in mm. core actuarial techniques. I quickly migrated more to the risk modeling side. I actually moved into the banking space within Heitman, so doing enterprise risk modeling, so looking at credit risk, market risk modeling, um, really, you know, much more quantitative numeric um, mm-hmm. form. It was really about taking those core actuarial skills and applying them to a different sector. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, though, gave me my taste for consulting. It gave me a taste of moving beyond talking to trustees of pension schemes to working for a wider variety of companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I spent a little bit of time at EY in their Solvency II capital optimization team, so that was where I really got insurance fundamentals. So how an insurance company works, how the balance sheet dynamics operate. Um, and then was lucky to move to, to BCG, where I, I mm-hmm. kind of took that core knowledge and applied it in a much more strategic context. 
um, left BCG actually originally in 2020. Um, so that was my first stint there. Uh, I spent a year at Cybercube. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. I was director of consulting there. So that was my my uh, immersion into the more commercial and cyberspace. And then I also spent some time as strategy lead um, for the reinsurance uh, line of business at Swiss Re. So I've come through various different twists and turns within the insurance space, you know, yeah. pr probably still trying to find my home there. Yeah. Um, but uh, but reinsurance is the one that's really grabbed me and where I'm going to be spending a lot of my time going forward. Yeah. I mean, the, the reinsurance space, everyone has a different journey into it. Um, yours is much better than the either by accident or my dad does this <laughs> sort of route. Um, but it's, it's one that I, I agree with you. Your last point is, I think, really poignant because once people sort of fall into this space, we've talked about this numerous times on the show, like it's so interesting. There's so much to unpack and yep. we'll dive into the report as well. But you look at the broader insurance sector and then you dive into the reinsurance element of it. And it's so unique and yeah. so interesting that it sort of draws you in to sort of unpick it more and more and more. So, um, yeah, it's a super interesting journey. And, yeah, I, I can see the appeal to stick around in this part of the industry for, for a while. And I'm also deeply reassured by the uh, the numbers in that report. Now, <laughs> yeah, exactly. The aerial credentials. <laughs> the and, confidence yeah. in the <laughs> If you were there doing, I don't know, presumably all the solvency to internal model applications and things as well, it's a pretty tough training. <laughs> it's tough training, yeah. We perhaps don't go quite that deep within yeah. the report, but yeah, it definitely, it definitely helps understand how the different dynamics work. Yeah, oh, brilliant. So one thing I wanted to get the conversation started about this report with was, I think, quite a noticeable change, at least for me, that seemed to have taken place when you look at the 10-year yep. horizon versus the five-year I, could you just elaborate on what that change is and maybe some of the drivers of it from your perspective? Sure, happy to do that. So the, the way we look at, uh, you know, total shareholder return or TSR within the report is is by breaking it down to three three core components. So if you think about how, how an investor will make money from, from a firm, it's they get cash back, so they can either get, they receive, um, they receive dividends or there's some kind of share buyback, um, you know, to, to return cash. And then there's capital gains. So they, they make capital through, and the way we look at it isn't, you know, is by breaking down capital into two components. There's a component which is, you know, what is the, you know, the growth and the tangible book value of that company over time. So the, you know, the, the equity component. And then there is what is the market perception of that company? What is the price to tangible book value multiple? And how has that grown over time? So broadly speaking for us, that's a proxy to understand, you know, the growth of a dollar of investment in a company over time and how that breaks down to the core components. If you, if you look at the 10-year view, reinsurers massively outperformed the rest of the industry. Um, good news. That was good news. So look, yeah. clearly partially this is just, yeah. you know, luck of timing to certain yeah. degrees when you start your 10 and five year, five year horizon. Mm. But ultimately over that time, you know, over that time period, although there were some major losses, there were also some really benign years as well. Mm. So 2013 to 2016 in particular was, were considered relatively, you know, light years yeah. from, a, from, a, from an account perspective. Um, so that allowed reinsurers to grow, and I think that we see that we see that across all of those three elements, across both you know how the market perceived see reinsurers, uh, the amount they were able to then give back to their investors, and then the growth in their their own tangible book value mm -hmm. as well. Clearly, the five year window has been has been very different. Mm -hmm. You know, we've had you know extreme losses over the last five years. We've got we've clearly had Hurricane Ian over the last few weeks as well, which will clearly impact results going forward. But we start to see a, a change in the picture here. For me, the most interesting change is not just the headline number. So the headline number, yes, is lower for reinsurers than it is for, for across the PNC space. But for me, it's that all of the value the reinsurers have gained on average has been from either share, you know, share buybacks or dividends, 
or through the change in the multiple. Like mm. that's really where where that value has come from. Actually, the 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 tangible book value growth has dropped for reinsurers compared to the rest of, of the mm. of the market. And that's a that's a unique facet of reinsurers over the last few years, given the losses that have accumulated across the space. So despite those losses, the market sentiment is still quite strong. You know, there there is still this belief that reinsurers can over the long term mm. outperform and you know and deliver you know value to their shareholders. But if you look at it from a purely fundamental economic perspective, you know, there has been value erosion to a certain degree in reinsurance over the last five years. And there's only two or three of the players that have really been able to buck that trend and to really stand out and continue to deliver uh, constant returns to their to their investors. So for me, that's the big story. It's the, you know, we've clearly had a very volatile period of time, um, but, you know, and but something has to change in the dynamic for, for reinsurers to start to reassure their investors that they, you know, there's a continued long-term, you know, value creation story from their books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we spoke about in an earlier episode, the sort of ways reinsurers make money. And we talked about sort of the investment income being one of those. When you looked at the few firms that were able to buck that sort of downwards trend over the last five years, what were the drivers of, of their ability to do that? What were the sort of th- the learnings from the firms that sort of outperformed? Yeah, so I would say there are two there are two elements. So one exactly as you mentioned is investment income. I think that has been the predominant driver of profitability across the reinsurance space if you look at it across companies. The other element for me that really stood out was was actually on the the multiple side. So the ability to communicate what your results are going to be to the market and to stick with that consistently and not and not could not deliver volatility to the market. So we, this, is, this is such a topical comment for the British political situation right now. <laughs> <laughs> I can't avoid commenting yeah, on it. But exactly. Sorry. Carry yeah. on. <laughs> um, but I mean, we, we. I mean, I think it's you know, if you look if you look across the insurers, the reinsurers already we were looking at. You know, Hanover clearly stands out as one. You know, as one of the best performers over mm-hmm. the last few years. And, mm-hmm. and ultimately, there's lots of reasons why that's the case. But one of the main reasons is also is that lack of volatility. They they say to the to invest to the to the analysts and the investors what they're going to receive, mm-hmm. and typically. They they stick to that. They're yeah. able to you know to provide that year after year. Um, actually, they they often slightly under you know they, they underestimate their expectations of the market and then over deliver. Again, that messaging has has kind of reinforced the the story of Hanover and how and how mm. you know and how successful they've been. Clearly, they've got a unique capital management model. Clearly, you know there are other reasons why, but it's been one of the factors that's really driven that you know that market belief in them over the last few years. So I say those two things are really the have been the drivers of the of the outperformance. And I noticed some of the other sort of top performers that you had in your report highlighted. I think Score were up there as an example. Did it typically tend towards the largest players? And do you, do you think size is a kind of fully necessary element in this, or did you see any smaller niche players able to buck that trend? So I think size does matter, but it's it's certainly not the driving the driving force, the driving factor. And you know, some of the the biggest players have have performed actually, you know, relatively poorly over the last the last few years. I mean, it's really about, you know, it's really about that, you know, the the underwriting, you know, your underwriting gains. It's really about, you know, where you've chosen to, to put your dollar of capital across across the market. And it's being able to, you know, being able to reinforce that message clearly to to your to invest as well. You know, size is, size is a matter when you can deploy your capital properly. If you don't deploy your capital well, it doesn't really matter who you are. You know, the outperformance mm-hmm. is, is not going to be there. Mm-hmm. I think what size does do is sometimes provide a cushion. So, you know, there are some players that are able to continuously provide dividends to the market, even when they're not performing well. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that is due to the size, the amount of capital that, they, they, you know, they have to a certain degree. 
but I would say it's not it's not a panacea. It's not it's not guaranteed that the bigger you are, the better you're going to outperform. It's that yeah. At the risk of labeling the wrong, con using the wrong consultancies, uh, concept, <laughs> there's some absorption versus agility, I think, chart somewhere. But, yeah. <laughs> but it, yeah, it's interesting, though, because you look at the need to, to pick risk better, right? Yeah. Um, but to do so, you need to see the risk. Yes. And the bigger firms have a better opportunity to see all of the risks available to them and then be selective from there, where smaller smaller firms sometimes don't have that ability so size is a, a driver of the sort of inwards deal flow that you're interrogating and you still need to pick correctly yeah. and price correctly you know to to just be successful there but there's absolutely a, a measure where it's like if you're a startup reinsurer trying to get honest lit, like the big deals the really profitable profitable deals are really hard to come by absolutely um, when i was a broker we had markets like desperate to get on the slips in after four or five years of, of begging, you'd, they'd get like 0.1%. Like, yeah. even though that's great business, it's it's not something that they can sort of have full control over. Where, you know, the bigger firms can be a bit choosier if they if they decide to be and if they are. I mean, it remains a highly concentrated market, yeah. and I think I think it's been very difficult to see how it won't continue to be a highly concentrated market going forward. You know, I think your point on on smaller reinsurers I think is really interesting. I think actually, where for me more of the of the opportunity maybe you know thinking about it almost from a third-party capital perspective and where you're able to deploy capital in that respect into the market mm -hmm. as opposed to just being a pure play reinsurer with a traditional traditional balance sheet and all the challenges that it comes with so you think going back to the question you know size clearly matters but i think you know th the big players are able to use their size as a way of you know diversifying their risk across multiple lines of business you know and, and as you said to cherry pick that you know the risk from the top of the top of the top of the pie there um but, but even so, with that diversification comes challenges. You know, you have to operationally be set up to be able to understand all those risks. You have to be able to get the data on all of those lines of business and have the internal operating model to be able to, you know, do the, do the underwriting, you know, all the, way through, all the way through the underwriting journey in an efficient way. If you have multiple lines of business operating in different ways, you know, you may well see great underwriting gains, but your operating costs are going to go through the roof. So I think it's a it's a bit of a it's a bit of a it's an interesting dynamic where you know bigger is better, but actually being better at a few a few kind of more concentrated lines of business may and may overall lead to a you know to a better outcome. Yeah, it's an area we've not really touched on in in the podcast so far. But this idea that we we talk about um, the sort of diversity targets, what you're trying to do, and there's always this this theory that you know if you if you diversify the portfolio, that will perform on the whole. Better, but you're right. There's a huge operational cost to do yeah. that because you need to be able to have the underwriter and the expertise and the pricing abilities to do casualty. And now you want to do cyber, so that's a different team with a different expertise set. So it's actually, as you said, it's more operationally efficient to say we do property cat in North America really well <laughs> and exactly. just sort of stay in your lane there. And at least there's an efficiency of operational um, efficiency in that side. And I think we're starting to see some of those dynamics coming through. And you know, we've seen over the last twelve months, you know, quite a lot of players, for example, move out of NatCat and start to move into more specialty or other other casualty lines. That's that's nice. That's fine on paper, and yeah. that that makes sense. But you know, you have to have the right underwriters. You have to have the right risk modeling capabilities. You have to have the right portfolio allocation capabilities as well, just to be able to support that business going forward. So, it's 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 not as easy as saying we're just going to write all lines of business, or we're going to pivot from writing NatCat to writing other lines. You've really got to think through that journey and what that means for us operationally and the, almost the dynamism of your operating model to be able to serve those different lines. Absolutely. And I guess 
we should come on to this this next topic in all, in all sorts of ways, but specifically on the operational side of things, I guess inflation is going to play quite a big part as wages maybe feel a bit of pressure at these big firms that, as you say, are maintaining huge underwriting teams. Mm. It'll be interesting to see the extent to which those costs start to impact uh, choices in that respect as well. It is interesting. I, from what we've seen so far, I don't think we've seen a huge change in that respect. I don't think we're seeing that that cost really coming through. You know, clearly inflation is having other effects on you know what you choose to contract from a risk appetite perspective. Um, but but that will change over time as well. I think there's also a huge amount of uncertainty about where in, where inflation is going to go over the next yeah. next three to four years. I don't think that's really being baked into you know core plans. You know, core three to five year plans. But agree, it, it it's it will definitely be a consideration when you're looking to you know to, to rehire a new team at new market rates. It's going to be a it's going to be a, it's going to be a very difficult dis- discussion for I think a lot of the smaller reinsurers. So I guess on that topic more more generally, do you think the interest rates and, and inflation environment at the moment is going to double down on some of these trends we talked about, where maybe underwriting profit comes second and the uh, in, interest uh, sorry the investment return is is what trumps it, or or will the hard market sort of counter that as well i think it's going to be very nuanced it's going to be yeah. very nuanced by line of business <laughs> and by geography to a certain yeah. degree i think look i think on the investment side we've got this bit of a double-edged sword at the moment True. to a certain degree so we've got a lot of these um uh you know s- some losses coming through for, for mark-to-market bonds and, and other and other areas which are hitting insurers in the short term mm-hmm. you know reducing the amount of capital they have actually available to deploy now which actually could be a fantastic opportunity right now to deploy capital in the right way but just because of the way the 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 models work and the way that the accounting the accounting measures work you know that capital is not freely available given the value of the bonds right now over time that will those bonds will mature and they will yield higher you know higher higher yields than they would have done you know a year ago so that will definitely come through and there will definitely be you know higher investment gains there i think on the underwriting side it's it's again it's so nuanced by line of business um you know i think clearly social inflation uh, on the casualty side, you know, it's a, it's a story that's been going for years. I don't think it's not a it's not a new topic, but it's clearly been exa- exa- exacerbated. Um, and and also f- to a certain degree, you know, there's still the the losses coming through from Ukraine. You know, that's still a live event. People still aren't sure exactly what's going to happen there. So, so that still has to play through. You know, to, mm-hmm. to results to a certain degree. So yeah, I, I I think if it, if reinsurers were getting all of their returns from the investment side, I think there would be a problem. You know, yeah. that's not really what the core of what reinsurance is about to a certain degree. It's not float business. It's not retail. It's not, mm. you know, retail PNC. Um, but I think that, you know, that will hopefully be a, be a bit of a helpful boost for some of the firms um, when they're not going to see, to a certain degree, some of that hard, that hard market pricing come through across all their lines. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm waiting to see at some point whether uh, the insurance and reinsurance academics can jump in for uh, the next Nobel Prize contenders following the interesting studies of Ben Bernanke and others around mm. what what really is the role of the banking kind of sector. I'm curious to see whether we could put our own industry under a similar lens and think about some of these things at a more. Because there is the, the broader sort of mitigation piece, like what is the function we're trying to serve and a reimagining to some degree of what we're here to do, right? And this is the mm. same thing that they did on the banking side. It's like, what is this? What is the target objective we're trying to serve to the sort of society as mm-hmm. a whole? And I think it, it would warrant an interesting analysis as to the impact of the sort of risk protection space. Yeah. I saw an interesting quote. I think it was yesterday from Mike Millett, so mm-hmm. from, from Hudson Structures. And I think I think he was at a conference in, in Bermuda. And I think the sentiment came through is, you know, if you looked at it from a wholesale risk market perspective, you know, reinsurers 
are not the whole of that market. They're a part of it. Mm. You know, they shouldn't expect themselves to be the entirety of that whole service market. There are other investors, of, you know, capital coming in to, to support them. But I think to the, the question about what is the point, the purpose of, of reinsurance in particular, mm. as opposed to insurance, um, I think there has to be an, there has to be a reimagining. I, I think that, you know the the way that the industry is today is you know you know it's not sustainable. It's not mm. sustainable to keep that keep the same dynamics, keep the same mentality on pricing, keep the same mentality on underwriting that, that it has been for the last, you know, five or 10 years. You know, I think we are going to see, you know, a structural change. Are there, is there going to be a lot of introspection and, you know, rethinking what they're there to do? I think, you know, time will tell on that. But I think, mm. you know, I think reinsurers may actually be forced down that route to a certain degree in order to, to really unlock where they're going to, you know, deliver value to their, to their clients. Are there any particular metrics? And no worries, when you haven't got the report in front of you, you don't know the exact numbers, but any metrics that you would sort of point to at the moment and encourage industry executives to be looking at really carefully as they think about those potentially, you know, identity changes in, in terms of what they are and who they who they are and what they do today. Mm. So I'm going to do the typical politicians thing, mention this trust and slightly <laughs> dodge the question, but I'll st I will still answer it and if that's okay. So I think, you know, one of the, the piece of feedback we often get on the report is, okay, you take a very much a, an accounting view. You look at published results and that's, mm. you know, that, that's what you look at. And I think for me, it's really, it's really about taking a step back purely from the internal economic capital view of the world. That is, you know, that is clearly very important. And that will clearly that should clearly drive a lot of the internal decision making that you do, but I think I think it's about getting a wide variety of metrics and really understanding it from the view of the different different stakeholders. Mm -hmm. So whether that's your internal economic capital view, your regulatory, you know, whether it's sovereignty two in Europe or Bermuda or other places, and your investor, you know, the investor lens as well. I think I think for me that's the you know that taking those perspectives. I think are the important thing. It's very easy if you get sucked into a purely economic capital view of the world you make decisions that may look good internally, but don't look good externally, don't look good for your investors or others across the market. So I won't point to a particular metric, but I will say it's a variety of different metrics across a variety of different bases that need to be considered when making those decisions. Do you have a, a perspective as to how long you think the hardening market period will last? Because the other thing that we might, we've seen a bit, and it could happen again, is, is this process by which the, the condition shift and there's this existential moment people sort of begin to reevaluate what we might look like in the future. And if the conditions return to softening, everyone kind of gets a bit lazy again and goes, well, there's no urgency to do those things anymore. W what is your thought as sort of how long this market sort of cycle will last and then the impact of, of that downstream? Again, it's going to be incredibly nuanced by line of business. So I'm I'll take cyber as an example, just because that, that's where I spend a bit of time. So, so the hardening market on cyber has been definitely more extreme than, than other lines of business. I think the general expectation is that trend will, will will continue to a certain degree, but that will have to stop at some point. I think there's only a certain amount that corporates will be able to absorb that. You know, we're, I think we're already hearing, for example, within the DNO space and other and other places of slight softening of those of those market trends. So I think you know, I think there's an expectation that those will, those will slow down. For me, what's going to be more interesting is the divergence between the softening market from an insurance perspective and a reinsurance perspective, especially post DN. So I think what we're possibly going to see is a lot of pressure on, on insurers to keep pricing down, especially because that market's been so hard. But then on the other side, the reinsurers are going to be putting pressure to, to increase prices, you know, again, given the losses yeah. that have been, been sustained. So I, I don't think there's going to be a, a particular inflection point. I think it's going to be a couple of years of, of tussle between the different industry players, you know, where prices can naturally f flow through and where there is the appetite to absorb them. You know, insurers will have to retain more clients and corporates will have to retain more to a certain degree. 
um, and reinsurers will have to smartly put through pricing across you know where the lines of business they think they think they can but i don't think there's going to be a natural point where it's going to go soft again. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be much more varied by by line of business. Again, given the divergence of dynamics we've seen across those lines of business and the losses we've seen mm -hmm. over the last four or five years. Mm -hmm. And in terms of, because I guess with all these interlinking different lines of business, with cap, uh, capital sort of constricting away from cat to some extent, in especially in Florida, uh, but in general, I think as as people acknowledge climate change is something they don't yep. necessarily want to play with. Do Do you think there is a willingness or even a a resource available for them to reallocate that capital elsewhere or is it just going to be a general shrinking almost of of the activity of the industry it's a really good question i wish i had a, a really yeah. quick snappy, snappy <laughs> answer to that one i think it's a really hard and it's a really it's a really deep question um look ultimately if if reinsurers are going to are going to continue to provide profitable growth that they that they need to for you know for, for their various stakeholders then then they'll there will have to be another route to, to for that capital to go what could happen and i suppose where there's a risk is you could just double down on the lines of business that you think are okay today yeah i think that's a massive risk i think if you continue to you know clearly there needs to be some uh you know some some sensibility of how you reduce the number of lines of business you have but it's not about going it's not about putting all your chips on one on one you know mm. uh on one slot in the roulette on the roulette wheel mm. now um i think there's there is i think there's also a risk and i think back to back to what you said of insurers that don't reinsurers that don't really understand some of the spaces they're getting into you know really you know doubling down where where you know where there's kind of hidden you know underlying risks there sorry i realized i haven't yeah. answered that question very well no no, no um, that's, that's really helpful and, and i think I mean, be interested to add another element to that as well when you commented earlier on things like share buybacks and other things you could do with that capital. Yeah, I, I think I think you can. Again, it's it's a it's it's a difficult dynamic to to weigh up here, right? So you know, share buybacks are seen very positively by the investor community, and there's lots of there's lots of you know underlying you know fundamental analysis to show that that has you know definite over time boost boost your share price. Um, but there is also an opportunity. Like now, now in particular, if, if there are going to be hardening spots across reinsurance, now is the time to a certain degree to, you know, to think through where you want to, to place that capital. There is always a, you know, will, will share buybacks increase almost definitely to yeah. a certain degree. Mm -hmm. But will, but but there's also, but it's important not to lose that opportunity for longer term growth. I think one of the points in the report that we make is that if you look at it over the longer term. You know, over the longer term, there are two things that really drive the value, which is the, the growth in tangible book value, so that profitable growth, and you know the capital distribution to, to the market as well. In the short term, actually, it's really that view of the multiple that drives that drives growth. You know, there's a bit of a divergent view between the, the five and the ten year view here. So yes, it'll be positive signals in the market. The analysts will like it. You know, you'll probably see a boost in the short term in your share price, but is that the right long term yeah. value creation strategy for for reinsurers now? I think that's the question they need to ask. And I guess, and I wanted to give a bit of a, a scary element to this discussion because we're lightheartedly chatting, chatting away about the sort of existential future of the industry. <laughs> but it was striking to me when we take a step back out of reinsurance and insurance specifically to see, I think you have one exhibit in the report which shows insurance and reinsurance relative to all the other yeah. sort of 34 industries yeah. that you surveyed. And how did we get on? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so quick news flash, not very well. <laughs> um, so, so I think again, test my memory here. I think in reinsurance came 27, 27th out of the thirty-three industries we had yeah. had in that report. Um, I don't think that's surprising. 
Mm. I think mm. if you look at if you look at the space, well, first of all, I think you know insurance and reinsurance is probably seen against a bit of a broad brush generalization as more of an income stock to a certain degree. So yeah. in, you know investors buy it for that that dividend yeah. yield. Um, I, I think we've also that's also it was also over the five year view. So that's mm. when we've had the, the greatest challenges across the market as well. Um, I think actually if you Fast forward two or three years and look look back at some of the technology players. They probably won't be quite as strong as they as they appeared in, in that That's report. <laughs> so I think it's it is a bit of a point in time to a certain degree. But e even if you look back longer term, like if you're if you're an investor, you really have to think: Why am I putting my dollar of capital into insurance, and in particular into reinsurance? Now, I think the the argument on on correlation with other assets has been widely discussed, and I think that's you know, it's clearly a good a good answer. But at the same time, you have to earn money. Yeah, you have to be able to earn, you know, return on that dollar that you're, you're putting into you're, you're putting into that that particular stock. So, um, we didn't do very well, but I think you know there's clearly lots of reasons why why that's the case. Um, but I think it's also a, a case of fundamentally, you know, rethinking where you know how do you make money in reinsurance and you know how how is that going to change that change over time? There's not going to be this big structural change in the industry, which means that reinsurers are going to go to the top of that top mm -hmm. of that pile. It's not it's just not the nature of the business and, and the beast and the type of major risks that we that we take, um, but I but I do think, but you know, but I do think the the choices you know that risk allocation choices will change and will and you know will hopefully prompt a bit of bit better growth over the next few years. It's interesting, isn't it? And so thinking in so that last comment you made, unlikely for us to, as an industry, suddenly leap in our ability to create value. Yes. Would you see that it is uh, more likely that we could destroy value quite? rapidly in, mm -hmm. in certain scenarios just just given the nature of the game we play or i think given the nature of the game play it's a bit it it's inevitable to a certain degree yeah. over um <laughs> hopefully climbing in our hope, value creation hope, gradually but occasionally yeah, hope, yeah. hopefully climbing the, the, the reality of, of the, the reality of reinsurance is you know it's, it's major you know it's, it's major loss driven yeah to a certain degree that's 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 the nature of the beat so it's also you know, especially if you look at the uh, the, the climate, the NACA side, it's relatively uncontrollable. Yeah. So it all comes down to the risks you choose, the price you're able to put through, and how efficiently you're able to run run your business. That's ultimately what what drives that that number there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's only a certain amount that that you know the CEO of any reinsurer can control when it comes to the climate side, and also it's it's a it's a constrained space. You know, the 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 reinsurers are not the ultimate arbiters of that price. You've got the insurance mm. plays there. You've got the brokers in there. You know, each you know each playing a different role in in dictating what that market looks like. So they're not always masters of their own destinies yeah. to a certain mm -hmm. degree. I think those are some of the reasons why it's never going to be the, the the major outperformer. Could we get into top fifty percent? Hopefully, mm -hmm. we can we can see that one. But it's 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 not the type of industry that's going to get into the, the top quarter. Yeah. Sounds like snakes and ladders without the ladders, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's one of those industries similar to banking in some degrees where um, the market might almost reject. The, the the sort of them us being at the very top of that list just by the very nature of the service we, that we provide and how we the products that we deliver etc. So you wouldn't see the case where if there were no losses ever, like obviously people would either stop buying the products yeah. or you know, prices would come plummeting down. So it's it's designed in such a way that as you said it's a cash stock. It's 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 intended to serve a purpose almost societally. Right. And and by that very nature, you're expecting it to sort of balance out into like, a, we'll be in this sort of range amongst all these other sort of industries. 
compared to like tech or compared to manufacturing or similar, which has unlimited upside in a number of different ways. No, absolutely. And there's actually, there's another interesting dynamic there across, to, to Karen, what you're saying across insurance and reinsurance, which is if you look at insurance, again, I'm, I'm talking broad generalizations here, but there's been a move away from very capital intensive lines of business towards mm -hmm. capital like fee generating style business. And that that has helped to manage a lot of the volatility um, within within the insurance stocks. That is starting to happen across reinsurance as well. So perhaps one way you could leapfrog is, you know, reinsurance becomes a capital light service industry to a certain degree, you know, with with the, uh, you know, more of a modeling modeling focus. I think that's much harder. You've got a much more constrained view of, you know, strange constrained set of clients if you're focusing on on the insurance space. Um, and also, as it's not the nature of what insurance reinsurance is really there to do. It's really there, as you said, for that greater societal need to, you know, as mm. protection for, for for large losses. So uh, I think the the dynamics would have to change, you know, so much that it would dilute the the very purpose of what reinsurance was was mm. there to provide. Yeah, and I guess you end up with then a bunch of hedge fund retype kind of models or or similar, where maybe. Or, or pure fee income based models where you don't actually have much skin in the game, which yeah. could, could, you know, to some extent mean you get less of the, the good stuff when you have good years mm. by, in exchange for, yeah, mm. relatively predictable portfolio and not being necessarily top of the list for my clients mm. as well. Well, and we, we've talked about in, in earlier episodes the importance of relationships and things. And I think, you know, if when you, when you look at, a shift away from the existing model, a shift away from that very long-term client-centric relationship component, that will probably make it harder to get on the on the bigger deals, harder to get the really profitable business that that client writes, because they're looking for partners who want to sort of support them across everything that they're trying to do from the insurer's perspective, right? So um, there's also, as you were talking, there's constraints as to the feasibility of their of them trying to do something different because that it, that behavior in and of itself might erode their ability to to access deals that they might want yeah and, and also potentially erode the relationships they have with brokers as yeah. they're starting to step yeah. on each other's toes in terms of what what they're doing you know erode the relationship they even have with their you know with with the primary clients if they're offering services directly to to the end customer which you know the, the insurers are there to do it's a delicate balancing act mm -hmm. um so, so, and if you look at the major reinsurers, there, there is to a certain degree a, a trend towards offering those those capital life, you know, almost service style solutions. Mm -hmm. um, it's yet to be fully tested, and I think it's yet to be fully seen as a as a long term growth vector for for the reinsurance. Mm. Yeah, well, we're, we're looking at and speaking to um, insurers who are sort of building technology as well uh, in in pursuit of supporting clients, understanding their own portfolios and. Um, exposure analysis for, to various perils and things. Um, again, it's it's uh, restricted to only the very largest reinsurers who could have the ability to exactly. build some of that out. Um, but even then, the way they market and present these these solutions is with a very clear lens as to they don't want to step on the relationships that the brokers are having for their sort of risk mitigation services. And so everyone's trying to add value and find a way to make additional income through that. But with a very clear positioning of how does the whole value chain operate, and if I step on too many toes, I'm gonna, you know, get my deal flow cut off or everything else. So, it's an interesting dynamic that I think everyone is is aware of and trying to build their position propositions within. If I was to say one thing that would wrap it up, I think the question that reinsurers have to ask themselves is what are they good at? Mm -hmm. What are they fundamentally good at delivering to to the market, and, and where can they really have a competitive advantage? That that's really the question there, and it could be that. 
within a narrow subset of that services or solutions business that they can have a competitive advantage. They have a model that is seen as market leading. They've got a way to distribute it. They've got a way to, to manage it going forward and monetize it. But it's not going to be end to end. You know, it's it's you're unlikely to now find a reinsurer that can offer service and solutions across a huge variety of different lines of business. You know, geographies, you know, types of service, and you know, and maintain those profitably uh, over mm. over time. So I think it's about saying, well, what what are we? You know, what are fundamentally do we do really well? Mm. You know, are, are we great at underwriting? Hopefully, most of them will say yes. We're really good at underwriting. Yeah. Are we really great at underwriting a particular line of business? Again, hopefully, most reinsurers will be able to pinpoint where where they're really good at. Do we think there's a market opportunity? Do we think that this is the right time to be investing in that space? And so, how are we going to set ourselves up to succeed? How are we going to set ourselves up to be able to, you know, to get the value that we need from that particular industry or line of business? You know, for, and mm. and continue to to be profitable to profit ourselves. It's more of a it's a it's a it's a multi-dimensional problem, and I think that's what that's what the, where the reinsurers have to have to get to over the next few years. In particular, because of the shift that we're seeing at the at the moment, in, you know, in terms of pricing, in terms of major market losses, and uh, you know, this this seems to be a bit of a moment in time where people are rethinking that dynamic and the paradigm of what reinsurers are really there to do. Mm. I think that's an amazing spot to wrap up on. Is this idea as we go into these sort of shifting market conditions, is looking at the way to survive is really digging into like what do you do well and focusing their efforts there. The firms that do that very, very well and have clarity of that, I think will will succeed. And firms that are sort of trying to uh, manage that journey without any real vision or any real clarity to their path, I think will struggle. So uh, unbelievably interesting. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank Jacob. you very yeah. much. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Great to have you on the show. Thank you.